remember having this conversation with the Lord and he said, who's your neighbor? I said, well, I don't really know. I don't fit in here. This isn't my culture. You know, I started to kind of try to figure it out. You know, well, they're not my color. Are, are these ones really my neighbors? God, that's such a different culture. And the Lord just spoke to me and said, your neighbor is whoever I put in your path that day. Hello, everyone, and welcome to B-Sides, where we discuss everything that cannot fit in a sermon. This week, Engaging Humanity. On Sunday, Pastor Mike taught from the Gospel of John about engaging humanity with Jesus. And he took us through the various relationships and interactions Jesus had with humans throughout that Gospel. On this show, we have connecting with people we have little in common with. It definitely had its times of being frustrating because you do face issues with connecting. Then friendship evangelism. Don't impose your faith on people. Expose your faith to people. Don't buttonhole them when it's not convenient and try to jam the gospel down their throat. Don't treat people like they're a project. And living missionally. So I think it's really first about, okay, how can I make a connection with them? And that's not usually very hard. But first, I have a couple of ideas I would like to share with you. Some of my own reflections on engaging humanity. As I look at Jesus, one of my favorite things about the Gospel of John is that we see his human interactions. We have those moments with Nicodemus in John 3 and the woman at the well in John 4. We have the woman caught in adultery in John 8. We have the man born blind in John 9. And, and there's just a myriad of other uh, interactions that Jesus has. But in all of these, we have a level of conversation between Jesus and these characters that you don't get in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. John is really giving us a deeper dive into how Jesus was human and how he interacted with humans. And you get the sense that there was something about Jesus that these people were drawn to. There are two things I think we need if we want to be effective in the lives of people. They are trust and listening. And they're somewhat interrelated. Trust and listening. So first, trust. People must trust us. Brene Brown, a well-known author and speaker in one of her recent books, talks about trusting others. Is this person somebody I can trust? Can I rely on them? Can I share my life with them? Or are they going to hurt me? Important question when we're engaging with humanity. And she comes up with this acronym, BRAVING, B-R-A-V-I-N-G, to illustrate the seven elements of trust. And so this is a sort of checklist to know, can I trust this person? As I go through it, you'll realize that simply by turning it around and examining ourselves, the question becomes, am I a person others can trust? 
I just thought that this was so good, I have to share it. So I'm going to read a portion of this, uh, the, the braving portion. So here it is. B. Boundaries. You respect my boundaries, and when you're not clear about what's okay and not okay, you ask. You're willing to say no. Reliability. You do what you say you'll do. This means staying aware of your competencies and limitations so you don't overpromise and are able to deliver on commitments and balance competing priorities. Accountability. You own your mistakes, apologize, and make amends. Vault. You don't share information or experiences that are not yours to share. I need to know that my confidences are kept and that you're not sharing with me any information about other people that should be confidential. Integrity. You choose courage over comfort. You choose what is right over what is fun, fast, or easy. And you choose to practice your values rather than simply professing them. Non-judgment. I can ask for what I need, and you can ask for what you need. We can talk about how we feel without judgment. And generosity. You extend the most generous interpretation possible to the intentions, words, and actions of others. So there you have it. Trust, based upon the acronym BRAVING. Seven elements. B, boundaries. R, reliability. A, accountability. V, vault. I, integrity. N, non-judgment. And G, generosity. A couple of these really stand out to me. Of course, reliability is huge. And just being consistent in people's lives really develops trust. Um, but I really liked the one vault. The idea of a vault being something you lock and keep something safe in. And that's true about the stories people share us or share with us or the information that they give to us. And this one really convicted me because I began to think like this is part of the problem of gossip is not only are we saying something about someone else that we shouldn't that's possibly harming them, but the person we're saying this to is beginning to think, wow, I don't know that I can trust this person. If they're saying this about them, then what are they going to say about the stuff I entrust them with? Then I also like non-judgment, the idea that I can ask for help If we attach judgment to our need for help, then we are going to unknowingly or knowingly attach judgment to others who ask for help. So people who are afraid to ask you for help may not see your asking for help very positively, very very possibly. We need to be okay with asking for help and realize that we all need help because some of us are braver than others to ask for it. And then generosity. I really like this one. We often say giving someone the benefit of the doubt. Basically, something happens, and rather than assuming the worst intentions, you assume the best. Almost like what Jesus prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And what if we treated everyone with that kind of generosity?
And if we even think that maybe they meant ill, we would ask them first. Hey, when you said this, what did you mean? Or, or when that happened, what was going on? Or did you realize that this offended or hurt people? And you may be surprised how often people never meant it the way you took it. So there you are, braving. These are the seven elements of trust. How are you doing? Do you think people are able to trust you? And connected to this is the idea of listening. So one, we need to be trustworthy. And two, we need to be good listeners. I have an acronym for how to listen. It might feel rigid and choppy when you think about practicing it, but you'll find it actually comes pretty natural and it is not choppy to the person you're talking to at all. Uh, the acronym, so we're full of acronyms today, right? Braving. And now this acronym is ASAP. A stands for acknowledge. S, summarize. A, ask. And P, permission. Here's how good listening works. Somebody comes to you and says something. The number one thing we need to do is acknowledge what they said. Acknowledge that they're a human being and acknowledge that their feelings or perceptions, whether or not you think they're correct, are real in their world. Acknowledge means you say, I understand how you feel or I see that you really are hurt by this. Acknowledge just means to validate what they're saying. Here's an example of how not to acknowledge what someone's saying. We often do this. We one-up people. <laughs> someone will say, oh man, I'm just so tired today. I got like four hours of sleep. And then you say, oh goodness, I know what you mean. I got three. Well, <laughs> there you're basically taking their feelings and saying, oh, yours don't matter, mine's worse. Better in that instance, if that person, if you want that person to feel like they've been heard and seen by you, is to say, wow, four hours of sleep is really hard. How are you doing? You don't have to interject yourself into that conversation. If they ask, go for it. But man, we're usually so quick to throw ourselves in. And what really happens is the person realizes, yeah, I'm not really that important to them. They're just throwing themselves into the thing I'm saying. So we need to acknowledge what people are saying. Second, S, summarize. So summarize is really important because it shows the other person that you heard them. And it demonstrates that Oh, it proves to me whether or not I did truly hear them correctly or not. And so they're going on about this event or something they're sharing with you or how they feel. It's really important that you then say, so you are feeling like this and you put it in your own words or so this happened and you, you say what they said, but in your own words and in a shorter way, just so that you can both be on the same page. Like, yes, I heard you and you affirmed that I heard you. And by putting it in your own words, it shows that you're not just parroting them like, oh yeah, I'm a great robot. I can listen to you. No, you are empathizing. You're able to put it within, you know, your own context and say, yeah, I'm with you. I, 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 I'm tracking with you. It's important for people to know. Have you ever talked to somebody who just kind of keeps nodding saying, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, but never say more than that? 
do you really think they're listening? Do you have any evidence that they are? They might be looking at you and nodding, but what's going on in their head? For all you know, they're thinking about lunch, or they're planning what they're doing after work, or they're writing that paper that's due in their head. <laughs> you don't know what's going on. Summarizing is so important because it gives immediate feedback in the conversation, and the person knows I've been heard. So you acknowledge, you summarize, you ask. You ask questions. Questions are so important because questions are how you get people to keep talking. Questions open up areas that they weren't even planning to talk about. Questions help people process things that they're still trying to figure out. Someone might start talking to you about their bad day. They may not even know why it's a bad day. They're talking because they're trying to figure out they need somebody to bounce this off of. And your act of asking questions can actually be very therapeutic. You just get them to keep talking. Ask them questions about it. Ask follow-up questions to those questions. Keep probing. Don't make assumptions. Of course, you're not interrogating. You're not treating them like a project. I'm going to get information out of you. No, you're just giving them opportunity and space to talk. We also happen to like when people ask us questions. Have you ever noticed that? It shows that the person finds you interesting. And let's be honest, everyone's favorite subject is themselves. (laughs) We love talking about ourselves. And you'll be amazed if you just keep asking people questions about themselves, they will keep talking. So acknowledge, summarize, ask, and finally, P, permission. One of the mistakes we often make when we're engaging with humanity is we want to immediately throw our advice upon them. We hear they're having a rough time or this is going on and we instantly start thinking about how can I fix this? What advice can I give? How can I be the hero for them? That's not good listening. We must gain permission in people's lives if we want to effectively speak into their lives. Permission sometimes can be as cheesy as saying, would you like some advice? Or it may simply be waiting for them to say, what should I do? But we shouldn't just throw our two cents in until they give us that opportunity. Oftentimes, people are not looking for advice when they talk to us. They just want to be heard. And I know from experience how annoying it can be when you're just trying to make yourself heard and share something with someone, and they immediately turn that into an opportunity to counsel you. Sorry, I wasn't really looking for counsel. And I think we can all relate to that moment when we're sharing with someone that, oh yeah, allergies are really bad right now, or I've got the cold, or I'm feeling this. And, and, and people start to give you, oh yeah, well you should try this, or have you done this? So they try to give you advice, and it's all well intended. Totally understand that. But what we have to understand is, often that person has heard that advice from every single person they've talked to that day. And it honestly, maybe I'm just speaking for myself. <laughs> I don't know if it's you too, but uh, after a day of being sick, that's one of the worst things is everyone trying to give you advice on how to get better. It's like, okay, everyone, I know, I just need sleep. Got it. I'm just letting you know, I don't feel well. 
<laughs> I wasn't asking for counsel or advice. So I, I feel like this, this permission is important because you will be seen as someone who listens if people get the sense that they're not just going to launch into a sermon on me. They're actually going to hear what I have to say. They're not going to label me into some preconceived category or some uh, previous problem that they've already dealt with. Oh, yeah, you're one of those. Here's what I say to these kind of people. No, no. Every response to truly engage with humanity, we must respond to humanity in as much diversity as human beings themselves are. There are no two people exactly alike. So why do we treat people like they're just like this type or that type? Good listeners see you. They see your uniqueness and meet you there. So I hope you enjoy these segments on engaging humanity. We're going to start with Michelle O'Chen. Most of you know her as our missionary to Uganda. She recently just moved back to their headquarters in Montana with her husband, Josh. Yeah, I had this conversation with her and was really enriched by it. Hope you will be too. Michelle, thanks for joining me. Yeah, happy to be here. You have actually just moved back from Uganda into the States, Montana. Yep. And you've spent, how many years have you spent in Uganda? Gosh, I went there in 2011. So that's what, six years? Off and on over the years. Six years. Okay. And so you're, uh, let's just state the obvious, you're a white girl <laughs> yep. in a black man's country. How did you engage with humanity of a different culture? Well, you know, it definitely came with its times of, like you said, being a white girl in a, in a different, in a black culture. It definitely had its times of being frustrating because you do face issues with connecting. Um, but the longer that I was there, the more I realized that you just gotta go straight to the heart. Like hearts speak one language. They understand love. They feel emotion. And they respond to compassion. So in a way, as you're describing the heart, you're describing what makes us human. Yeah, exactly. Because regardless of your upbringing or your culture, every heart has similarities. You know, we all carry the effects of things that we've been through, good or bad. And it really doesn't matter what happened necessarily or what your culture um, has, you know, brought through your life, but really the effects of what has happened to you and how that influences you as a person today. You're in a culture where people kind of don't understand your interests. You speak a different accent. <laughs> um, you're different skin color. Uh, you're probably learning how they dress. So with all of these barriers, you're just trying to find that common human connection. Exactly. Those things that don't change no matter where you live. Exactly. And what I found the more time that I spent in Uganda or that I spent in America, wherever I was around people, I realized that one thing we all have in common is our, is our heart, right? And that is something that the way I see it is that God was so diverse in his creation, right? Skin colors, languages, different features, different ways of doing things. But one thing he kept the same throughout all of human creation was the heart. 
And Ecclesiastes 3 tells us that he put eternity in the heart of every man. So what I found is just that we all have this similarity in a heartache. We all are aching in our hearts, either good things we've been through or bad things we've been through. We all have emotion in the heart, and he alone, Christ alone, is the solution to whatever your heart is facing. So I've always found that connection and going straight to the heart, that there's there's something in every human with that heart that you can connect with. I love that because I love how you're touching on not just, yeah, there's the heart, this nebulous thing that people probably define very differently, uh, and not just the fact that we have like emotions and experiences, but you're, you're emphasizing the fact that they're like, there's an emptiness that all humans share. Exactly. And, and I love that because, uh, when I was in school and we had our, our preaching classes, that's actually one of the things one of our books told us to emphasize was, Find the fallen human condition and you will connect with mm. everyone. Mm. So, so you're looking for that. Uh, maybe, maybe take us through an example of someone that you found a connection with and what was it about them that you saw and how did you see it? Yeah. Um, so often, I mean, there's girls that I would connect with that we really have nothing in common. Like, I came from a really good, strong family, and they came from a family that wasn't really around or they lost one of their parents at a young age, and they have different passions and different gifts and talents, yet then when you have them over to your house and you start to ask them deeper questions, so not surface, not what do you like to do or what hobbies, you know, none of those things, but getting down to the heart of like... But it is important to start there, isn't it? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, I think those are the things that bring someone into your home to have that cup of tea to sit and talk. But then when you get down to the, so, so what, what are the challenges that you face? Suddenly you start to find that across the globe, people are facing many of the same challenges, be it insecurities, um, lusts or temptations. You just, you start to find that we all are aching inside and we all have struggles within this life. And those things that you're struggling with, I think, start to draw you nearer to somebody. And then as you're able to encourage each other and strengthen each other in the Lord and how he's the solution and the answer to the struggles that we're facing, you really find this bond to where it, it, it just the world becomes small. I feel like the world in my life has become so much smaller because of the bond that Christ brings when you start to connect to other hearts. Yeah. And so how do you find those things? Are you asking questions? Are you observing their behavior? How are you pinpointing their needs? It's both. You know, I think with um, the more you observe in life, the more you learn and the deeper you get in life. Because when you can take that time to first observe, you'll see character, um, you'll see habits in someone, you'll see the way that maybe they react or respond to different situations. You actually start to connect with someone before you've even verbally spoken to them when you take that time to first observe. And I think with a lot of the deeper relationships or meaningful relationships I've had, I first observed the person. And by the time we sat and talked, I knew I I could kind of sense where they were at or maybe what they're struggling with. And, um, you know, they can tell someone can tell when you genuinely care and when you've been looking and you're not just trying to fix things quickly, but you actually care and you've observed. 
Yeah, yeah, you see something unique. You see them. You don't see them as a label or a category you've put them in. Because mm, so often you're wrong. You know, so often someone puts on a front, but it really isn't who they're trying to be. It's actually just the way that they're dealing with something that they've gone through in their life. And so they're just masks covering it up. And when you take that time to connect to the heart, you start to see those masks go away. Um, I mean, one girl in particular would definitely put on a, a mask of kind of dressing um, darker colors and people were worried about her, the way she was presenting herself. But I started to have her over regularly and found that, you know, that was just the way that she was handling tough things she was facing, kind of a way of hiding from people to really see her real heart and who she really was. But the more time I spent with her, the more that those masks came off. And I even started to see physical changes, you know, physically in the way that she started to present herself more to true to who she is. And so that just came from connecting and finding something she was passionate about. She loved to sing. And so I'd have her over and we'd do voice lessons, but we'd also talk about life, talk about the struggles of life. How do you build trust with people? Gosh, I think uh, probably the, one of the biggest lessons I've learned from time spent in other cultures is consistency builds trust. Like when you're faithful and consistent, you, you're there in the in the good times and in the bad times. People begin to trust you because they always at first are thinking, oh, you'll run when it gets hard, right? And I think that's every human heart. We always think the person will run when things get hard. But when they see you stick through different storms that come your way, it really does, that consistency of just being there really builds trust. What lessons can we learn from the incarnation of Jesus? Hmm. I like that question a lot. I, I just, I see God's heart for relatability through Jesus's incarnation. I see his understanding that he, he understood what it meant to not really feel at home in this world. And deeper in that, I, I learn a lesson from Jesus's incarnation that we're not called to be of this world either. So as I thought about it, I thought about how he left heaven and came to earth so that we could leave earth and come home to heaven. Cause earth is never meant to be where we feel at home. And I just, I just see that through Christ leaving his home is to show us that we're not called to make this our home. Like he left so that we can then go home eventually, but here isn't home yet. Yeah. So he really becomes a model in that we don't have to connect only with people we have a lot of things in common with. Hmm. God becomes a man. I, I, I feel like there's just... I don't know, a few things that maybe God doesn't have in common with humans. Mm. <laughs> Yet in the incarnation, when Jesus comes to earth, we see him connecting with people. Have you learned any lessons uh, just kind of in seeing how Jesus interacts with people? Have you kind of noticed that you've picked up on some of those things as you interact with people that don't have a lot in common with you? Yeah, I think... One of the neatest things in looking at Jesus's ministry is that he never did things the same way every time. There's mm. always a diversity in, in he, you know, he cared about the heart of the person and he handled each situation according to the need of the situation. There wasn't a routine response from Christ. And, um, 
that has challenged me in so many ways too, because I believe that the, you know, in looking at his incarnation and the things that he did during his earthly ministry, it's taught me that obviously sin has left the world unperfect, right? We know that. And I think about the example of the man born blind that Jesus healed and, and Christ had the power as he walked on earth to heal everything. I mean, and even still today, we don't have to see people. He, he like people, Christ has the ability to just, you know, snap his finger and things are fixed and people are healed. Yet there still is people in need all around us. And I believe that he's allowed those things so that you and I can have the opportunity to show compassion to those around us. And I, I believe every heart that we come in contact is really an opportunity. And when I was the first year I spent as a missionary, I was just asking the Lord, okay, people are calling me a missionary. What does that mean? And I remember so clearly the Lord saying to me, what is one of the commandments, right? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. I remember having this conversation with the Lord and he said, who's your neighbor? I said, well, I don't really know. I don't fit in here. This isn't my culture. You know, I started to kind of try to figure it out. You know, well, they're not my color. Are, are these ones really my neighbors? God, that's such a different culture. And the Lord just spoke to me and said, your neighbor is whoever I put in your path that day. So as you're walking through life, as you're doing your regular routine, as you're following after me, whoever I put in your path each day is an opportunity to love on that person. That's your neighbor. It became so simple, so simple. I didn't have to try to figure out what to do each day or how to love this person or that. Just living my life following the Lord. And he puts people in your path. And whoever that person is, is your neighbor for the day. And whatever their need is, as diverse as it will be, you do your best to help and allow the Lord's love to shine through you. It becomes so simple. (laughs) Right, right. It's about learning just to live with acceptance with the fact that God is orchestrating your day. Absolutely. And I love how you mentioned how God will put people in your path. As you're wondering, who's my neighbor? God will put people in your path. It reminds me of that parable Jesus tells in response to the lawyer who asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Mm. And he tells a story about a guy who gets beat up and is in a ditch. Mm. And then coming along the path in his life, Mm -hmm. coming on his path is not who he'd expect. A Samaritan. (laughs) somebody who he didn't exactly have a lot in common with. And I feel like, I feel like that's kind of what you're saying is we face this every day of look, people come in our path, but I think sometimes we turn them down because they're not who we expected to be in our path. Mm. (laughs) That's so true. How has learning to make cross-cultural relationships shaped your other relationships? It has really taught me to not judge off of appearance. It has taught me to be slower to share my way of doing things too. Um, and in that I've learned many other and often many better ways of doing things. Um, I think we can be so quick to just share our opinion or always be the one talking in our relationships that we miss out on a lot. And being in a different culture with a different language where I didn't always have the liberty to talk and be able to lead conversations, it taught me what it meant to slow down and first observe before I start speaking my opinion on things. Why do you think we feel the need to talk? 
<laughs> I think because we always think we're right. <laughs> I think if we're we're actually honest and true with ourselves. There's there's a level of pride where we think we're right or we're trying to be in control. I, that's for me. I can only speak for myself, but I think I definitely am trying to always be in control. <laughs> I think that's a pretty honest answer if we're real with ourselves. <laughs> uh, I love what you said. Sometimes we're so quick to talk that we miss out on a lot. And it reminds me of James telling us to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Mm. And then it also says it's slow to become angry. And and I do wonder, I guess maybe I'm kind of getting off topic, but <laughs> I do wonder if we were quicker to listen and see people, see the person in front of us, if we would have less anger and contentious discussion from everything from religion to politics to the color of cars. Mm. Yeah, I I think it would change things. I mean, I know from my personal life being married to Joshua, who is from Uganda, there's so many times he does things very different than I would have done them. And I find myself constantly almost jumping in and saying, that's not the right way to do it. But then when I watch him complete the task, I actually end up finding that that the way he did it was far better than the way I would have done it. And um, so I've just found that the more that I'm willing to let go and wait till the situation unfolds, there's many times that I've learned a whole different way, even a better way of doing things. I think we're just quick to judge it. (laughs) I've learned that it takes humility to stop talking and start listening And I think the reason it takes humility is because when you're listening and you're observing, instead of making your voice heard, you're becoming a student of those around you. Mm. And I love that you were just able to admit that you've been able to learn that sometimes Joshua has a better way of doing things. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the other on that question, too, as I reflected on you know, what has the other cultures done to influence my other relationships? It's influenced my relationship with God. And what I mean in that is that it has shown me that God is not a God of just my culture. And he's, he's God. He's so far above and greater than any way of life that I'm used to. And in that too, in his personality, he's diverse. He doesn't, like we talked about earlier, he doesn't always do things the same way. He enjoys diversity. And I think that we would benefit so much if we came to a place of enjoying more diversity. But, um, you know, speaking as an American, I know we commonly have our cultural way of doing things. And um, it is many times the most effective and a really good way to get things done, but it's not always the only way to get things done. And so I think the beauty that's happened for me in seeing different cultures has enabled me to see that there's more than one way to do things. And it's expanded my view of God because he is not just of one culture. He's of every single one of these tribes and tongues and languages that he's created. And he's sovereign over each and every one. And we learn more of the heart of God when we're willing to open our eyes to other people's hearts and other people's ways of doing things. We see the diversity that he designed and created. And it just expands our worldview in every area. It concerns me as I look at the names of the authors of many of my books. There's something in common with all of them. Mm. 
They're in the academic world of universities. They're white. They're male. They're American. And I wonder, I wonder how much we may be missing or losing out on by not allowing more diversity uh, in our lives with people seeing God in a much bigger multicultural way. Hmm. How do you think we can incorporate more diversity in our lives? Hmm. Again, I, I, I think it, a lot of it comes with just observing, not always being the one doing everything, you know, but allowing other people, because as much as, you know, here we're kind of speaking about America or Uganda or a different country, but even just within from me to you to the next person, we all have brought been brought up in a different way. We all kind of carry with us our own little mini culture and the way that our family was or lack of family, um, the way that we were trained and disciplined growing up, we all have our own little mini cultures. And so the more that we allow other people to be a part of the things we're doing, even that itself is going to bring so much more diversity and seeing the different ways. I'm going to do something very different than you're going to do it. And you're going to do it very different than Tom or Jerry or Alyssa. You know, everyone's going to do it a little bit different. And if we took the time to um, sit back and observe more. I think even right under our noses, we would be learning a lot more diversity. And then in the bigger picture of it, I think studying, studying, um, just open, you know, we have Google at our fingertips of just taking time to, um, explore different cultures and different areas of the world and just kind of seeing more diversity. If you can't travel, you can travel on your computer a little bit through Google and just, it will, I think it will open our eyes more to just um, the great and beauty of diversity that God created. Michelle O'Chen talking to us from her freshly arrived Montana location. (laughs) Thanks so much, Michelle. You're welcome. Thank you. If you don't know, Michelle is my sister. So I might be a little bit biased when I say... She has a lot of wisdom, but I don't think I'm being biased. Next, we have Dr. Denny Milburn on friendship evangelism. Denny is one of the most kind-hearted and intelligent souls I have ever met. When you talk to him in person, you often wonder, where does he get all this? He is like a walking book. He retains everything. He's just so great. And I think that you'll find him humorous, uh, insightful. And so hope you enjoy his talk here on how to evangelize through a friendship relational method. A certain man was rough and tough and gruff. And soul winners went by his house, and he didn't want to have anything to do with them. They tried to share a verse, but he didn't want to hear it. If they brought him a tract, he'd probably chew it up and spit it out at them. If they gave him the Romans road, he'd probably throw it down on the road and stomp at it. Finally, the preacher went to this guy's house. 
and he threw the preacher off the deck. What do you do with a person like that to witness to him? Well, one day, this guy met a friend, dot, dot, dot. This man got saved and became a well-known evangelist and has led hundreds and hundreds of people to Christ. Even though he was rough, tough, and gruff, he was saved. Now, before I talk about friendship, evangelism, and relating to people, I think there's certain things that we need to not do Otherwise, you'll never have anyone to speak to. You'll never have an audience. I'm going to try to go through these in less than a minute for time's sake. I call them evangelism don'ts. Some people seem to think that you have to forget everything you knew about tact growing up in courtesy in order to be a witness for Jesus. I went to a militant evangelistic school and it seemed like that was the case. And so the first thing I want to say is, when you're witnessing to somebody, don't be tactless or offensive or obnoxious for Jesus' sake. Some people think you need to do that. Don't be a Christian caricature that people can't relate to. Don't speak Christianese and talk about being washed in the blood of the Lamb. They won't have any idea what you're talking about, and they'll think you're weird. Don't impose your faith on people. Expose your faith to people. Don't buttonhole them when it's not convenient and try to jam the gospel down their throat. Don't treat people like they're a project, like you want them to come to church to win a Bible. They'll pick up on that and they know you don't care about them, you just care about winning a Bible. They're not a project, they're a person. Now, don't shortcut the process. Some people think that you could ask people, would you rather go to heaven or hell? And they'll say heaven and say, okay, bow your head and say I do, and you'll go to heaven. But it requires more than that. Don't generate heat, but generate light. And this is one thing I really want to say. Don't be radically the same as people, and don't be radically different. If you're radically the same as people in the world, and go where they go and do what they do, and go to the strip clubs and their drug parties, if you're radically the same, you're going to lose your message. But if you're radically different, you're going to lose the audience if you're a Christian caricature or speak Christianese. So don't be radically the same or radically different, either one. Now, there are several ways that we can evangelize people, and they're all good under the right circumstances. For example, you could evangelize somebody with one verse or with one track, like the four spiritual laws, or one plan, like the Romans Road. Now, if any of these would have been tried on the gruff men, they wouldn't have worked at all. He needed more time, more preparation than that. There's other methods like proclamation, like at a Billy Graham crusade, or an evangelist on television, or in a church. There are methods uh, of cultivation, it's called, where you cultivate a relationship with somebody, you sow the seed, you harvest. There's a narrative approach. There's a storytelling approach that Jesus knew so well and used so much with his parables and discourses and like that. 
But what I want to talk about today is friendship evangelism, and I want to talk primarily about what's called the layer approach or the onion approach. And there's another one that I think I'll mention first, and that is called investigate, stimulate, and relate. Jesus did that. He didn't have to investigate people because he knew what was in men, but he stimulated people all the time, and then he related something to them. For example, when he met Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again. That was really stimulating. He had to think about that. There was probably a pause, and he said, what do you mean? Can I enter the second time into my mother's womb and be born? And Jesus explained to him that there's a natural birth and there's a spiritual birth. But that must have really stimulated that question. Or say the woman at the well. Just the very fact that he talked to her, a Jew with a Samaritan, stimulated her. And he stimulated her with other ways. Talking about giving him water to drink. And then he talked about living water. You don't get living water out of a well. That's moving water like in a river. Then he talked about if you drink this water I give you, you'll never thirst. That's all really stimulating. And it invites a response and a question. And then he related things to her. Now, I want to talk about friendship evangelism real quick in general. And I want to say this. It involves living a Christian life in front of people, a warm, honest, open, genuine, transparent life in such a way that glorifies God and is a good witness to those that we want to lead to Christ. Friendship evangelism is especially needed for the unprepared. A lot of the people that Jesus talked to, the Jews had 1,500 years of religious experience and education. Other people today have no experience at all. They know nothing about God or church or the Bible or anything. And it requires a different method than somebody that's prepared. And it can't be a quick thing like one verse or one track or like that. Friendship evangelism is a process and allows time for unprepared people to learn something and for you to deal with them. It's a warm, friendly, and engaging manner. It's not obnoxious or insensitive. There are no Christian caricatures or anything like that. It's natural, and it doesn't contone Christianese. It's a process, a drawn-out process, not a shortcut for a quick decision. Friendship evangelism is friendly to publicans and sinners like Jesus. He talked to everybody. It doesn't promote isolationism. It's for the least, the last, the lost, the lonely. Even the lunatics like the wild man of Gadara or the lame or lepers that no one would have anything to do with. Those that are on the fringe of society. Those that are disenfranchised. This friendship evangelism gives credibility to what we say. And what we say had better go along with what we do. It involves necessarily modeling. We're a model to the people that we're talking about. A model leaving an honest, open, genuine, transparent life, having joy and fun, and yet not living like the world. We're in the world, but not of the world. There needs to be a frequent, long-term contact with the person. There arises a warm, loving relationship between people. The person needs exposure to the inner states of the Christian the Christian needs to be observed 
in a variety of life situations. The Christians need to exhibit consistency and clarity and in his behavior and his values. There needs to be a correspondence between the behavior and the Christian and his faith and his beliefs. And finally, there needs to be, at the end, a communication of the gospel. Friendship evangelism is a process. It's a drawn-out process. I've had pastors say to me, nobody ever gets saved with friendship evangelism, but I know it's not true because I've led people to the Lord this way, and it was the only way that somebody could have reached them. The man that threw the preacher off the porch, do you think you could have reached him with one verse or one tract? No. One day, a friend showed up, and because of that friendship, the man was saved and became a Christian and uh, saved many people, led many people to the Lord. And by the way, the most important thing in all of this is not a method or a plan. They're all good. But it's the Holy Spirit that convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's his work. It's your work also, because sometimes there's a God side and there's man's side. God uses human instrumentality, and he'll use us. But it's always the work of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to be a salesman and talk people in to becoming a Christian because that won't work. The first approach that I want to talk about to you, and the main thing, is called the layer approach. It's like an onion. An onion has many layers, and you have to peel the layers of the onion off to get down to the center of it, to the core of it, to the heart of it. And sometimes with people, That's the process you have to go through with them. You talk to them, and there are various layers in the conversation where you get deeper and deeper and deeper into the process. The layer approach is a process, a warm, relaxed approach. Now, some people look at it like this. There's four layers. The first layer is a general layer, which I'll explain Then there's a specific interest layer. Then there's a philosophical layer, or what people believe about this or that. And then there's a theological layer, where you end up talking about God and things like that. Now, if you start talking to people right away about God in some shortcut approach, as soon as you mention God, they're going to be looking around to see if anybody's looking at them. They're uncomfortable with it. The way I'm going to talk about is a way where They never get uncomfortable. In fact, they'll probably ask you questions about God. And there's different ways of doing that. The general interest layer starts with just general information, like if you meet somebody. Just a normal conversation. You know, what school uh, do you go to? Do you have any hobbies? Uh, What's your occupation? Uh, Do you have a family? Do you live in town? I met a fellow in a chess club one time and played chess with him and developed a really long relationship with him over a period of years and led him to the Lord. And he was a really big, rough, tough, gruff German that nobody could have reached with a verse or a track or something like that. It took a long period of time. So after this general interest layer where you get to know a people, there's a specific interest layer where you start talking about things more specifically. You might ask him, 
what school he went to, and what his major was. He might say, well, my major's history. Really? Uh, what area of history? He might say, ancient history. You might talk to him about, have you ever studied Egyptian history? And there's a lot of things about Egyptian history that are really interesting. Uh, this is just kind of a specific layer. You're talking about more specific things, and you're getting deeper and deeper into the conversation as you go from the general layer to the specific layer. And the whole idea is to get down to the philosophical layer and what he thinks about this and about that. Now, this philosophical layer is really a crucial layer. It's kind of the key layer. It's the bridge that gets people to the theological air layer where we're talking about God and the Bible and different things like that. It opens the conversation for topics like the afterlife or morality or the Bible or God. It finds the all-important inroad that allows you to naturally share the gospel because all of this is coming up generally in their conversations with friends over a period of time and it's warm and it's relaxed. For example, the fellow said he went to college. He said his major was history. Uh, we talked about if he'd ever studied Egyptian history. You get down to the philosophical layer, you might talk to him and say that, you know, the pharaohs were buried many times uh, with their servants and with their wives. And uh, sometimes they were buried with instruments to use in the afterlife. They obviously believed in an afterlife. So in this philosophical layer, you might get to the point where, what do you think about that? What do you think about afterlife? Do you have any ideas about the afterlife? Do you believe in afterlife? Do you think there's a heaven and a hell? So you're getting into philosophical layer and getting to know what they think about this, what they believe about that. And the whole idea is to get down to the theological layer where you're really talking about God in the Bible and afterlife and hopes that Christians have uh, and the plan of salvation and like that. And so these layers are a warm, relaxed way over a period of time where you develop a friendship with somebody and you can talk about anything. I said to a friend of mine, you know, we're friends. We can talk about anything. And we don't have to be embarrassed or anything like that. We can talk about anything we want to talk about. Now, I want to say this, that I believe all of these methods are good for the right person. Some methods are good for the prepared person. Other persons are unprepared and need a different method like this friendship evangelism. And I want to say that your success is guaranteed. Psalm 126 says, He that goeth forth weeping, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And so we have absolute promises of success. Why do we want to talk to people about Christ? First of all, there's a great commission. There's also a greater commission where Paul tells us that we're reconciled to God, and it's our job to reconcile others, to reconcile them in Christ's stead, and say to them, be reconciled to God. That's one reason we do it, is because uh, God asks us to. But if we have compassion on people like Jesus did, 
where he talks to the least and the lost and the lame and the lunatics and the lawyers and all these different things, even the libertine, and we have compassion on them, I think it would motivate us if we can see people how they are in this world without any hope. There's a thing that I read, it's called Pictures from Life's Other Side. And it says, in the world's mighty gallery of pictures are the scenes that are painted from life. There's a picture of love and of passion, and there hangs a picture of peace and of strife. There hang pictures of youth and beauty, of old age and the blushing young bride. They all hang on the wall, but oh, the saddest of all are the pictures from life's other side. Yes, a picture of life's other side. Someone has fell by the way. Life has gone out with the tide. Oh, that might have been happy someday. I relate some of this to my mother who used to stand on a dark kitchen looking out the window waiting for my brother to come home late at night. I can relate some of this to my brother who was a gambler and who spent half his life in prison. I can relate some of this to my sister that was an unwed mother two or three times. Now the first scene is that of a gambler who's lost all his money at playing. And then he draws his dead mother's ring from his finger that she wore long ago on her wedding day. Oh, it was his last earthly treasure, but he staked it. And then he bows his head in his shame. Oh, God. When they lifted his head, they found he was dead. It's just a picture from life's other side. Now, the last scene is that down by the river of a heartbroken mother and babe. And as the harbor lights shine and shiver for an outcast that no one will save, and yet she was once a true woman and was someone's darling pride. God help her, she leaps, for there's no one to weep. It's just a picture from life's other side. And that's bad. But what about another L? What about the libertine who's gone all of his life without God, without Christ? And he's dying, ready to step out into eternity without Christ, without a friend, without a companion, without any place to lodge, without any comfort, who doesn't need God to accuse him, who doesn't need the devil to accuse him, his own mind accuses him. Those are the words of a libertine that I think were the saddest words I've ever heard, and I want to read those to you before I finish. This man who's about ready to step out into eternity says, Now is my case more miserable than the beast that perisheth in a ditch. For I must go to answer before the judgment seat of the righteous judge of heaven and earth. 
where I shall have none to speak for me. And these wicked fiends who are privy to all my evil deeds will accuse me. And I cannot excuse myself. My own heart already condemns me. I must needs therefore be damned before the judgment seat. And from thence be carried by these infernal fiends into that horrible prison and endless torment and utter darkness, where I shall never more see light, that first most beautiful thing that God created. I who gloried hitheretofore in being a libertine, and now enclosed in the very claws of Satan as the trembling partridge is within the gripping talents of the ravening falcon. And ends by saying this, Where shall I lodge tonight? Who will be my companion and friend? And friend? Oh, horror to think. Oh, grief to consider. Why do we want to be a soul winner? Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Next, we have a conversation with Michael Beavers. Michael Beavers coordinates missions for us at Calvary Chapel Twin Peaks. If you go to our fellowship, you may have seen him roughly once a month uh, updating us on our missionaries. But not only our missionaries, he's also planting seeds of what he calls, and many call, missional living. Now, it's sort of a phrase that we've been throwing around, and I think people just don't understand what it is. It's it's just a word. Um, so here's here's how it's here's how one person defines it. Missional is not an event we tack onto our already busy lives. It is our life. Mission should be the way we live, not something we add onto life. As you go, make disciples. Walk wisely towards outsiders. Let your speech always be seasoned with salt. Be prepared to give a defense for your hope. We can be missional in everyday ways without overloading our schedules. So in short, missional living is the choice to be a missionary in everyday, ordinary life. The whole concept of what a missional lifestyle is, I think... The big idea is about, and I was trying to share this with, with my wife, and she was, she was saying that it came off a little too much like theology. Um, but, but, you know, I think it is theology, and I think it's important theology, the idea that if we're being missional, then we are representing, we're being disciples of Jesus who was sent by God, and we're also playing out the fact that Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit and Jesus both sent us. So there's the sending thing that's going on, and I think that's one core idea in the missional idea that, that we are sent. 
we are sent and we're sent for a mission. And and now in, in modern parlance, when you talk about mission, you usually don't get too far from like a military kind of use of the word, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you're a soldier and you're sent on a mission, one of the things that's real clear to you is that it's not about you. It's about the mission. If you were to die in the mission, that really would be okay, right? I mean, that's sort of the concept of if you're a soldier, then that, then it's, and you're told to take a certain hill and you were to die doing it. Some, somebody decided it was important enough that some of us had to die doing it. And it, you're that, basically like, a pawn. Yeah. That's sacrificable. Fairly, un, fairly not terribly significant, which isn't terribly an American idea, right? Because I think in America we want to be significant and important. Uh, and we, wanna, yes. we, we want yes. our mission to be the most important thing. And in fact, the concept of mission is really, no, we're following Jesus. We're following God who's on a mission. He's got a mission and it might be, it might be that my role in it is a really unsung role. It might be that my role is simply to sacrifice myself in a certain way. Um, Or it might be that my role is to sacrifice my rights in a certain way. Do you live missionally at work? Well, this is where it connects for me. Actually, um, a few years years ago, I was noticing that... that I really believed God was calling me to live in a missional way. I really believe that's going to be that's going to be critically important for me. But at the time, I was involved in a church, and and I was getting more and more involved in leadership. And one of the things I found is that the more involved you get in leadership, the more difficult it is to live in a missional way, because you're not connecting with people who aren't believers. And so, so I started to come up with strategies that I thought really made sense, that really were going to, to naturally connect me with people in the community, um, hopefully that had some values that were the same as mine, so it wouldn't be impossible for me to connect with them, but, but that, that there would be folks that weren't believers. Some, some of those strategies, one of those things is that um, a few years ago I decided that being involved with, with volunteer organizations was a really good idea. So I thought, you know, if I was connected with Rotary or those kinds of groups that that they're doing some amazing things in terms of leadership, in terms of service, they already had some values that already were values that were important to me anyway. And so it was easy for me to connect with them. And yet many of them, actually what I discovered is that the Crestline Rotary Club, which is a great club, but but that that tended to be more evangelical. It was kind of let it was it was led by people that were spiritual. There was a pastor there, and he was kind of bringing a lot of people in. And so so that didn't really work for me. But then when I went to the Arrowhead Club, it's like no, that's more of a broad that's more of a broad group that represents the mountains. When people ask me about well. How could you evangelize somebody in in like a, a clinical setting? The answer I always give them is, well, I assume God's in the process of bringing somebody closer to Him, regardless. Uh, and I and so I want to cooperate. I want I want to cooperate with that any way I can. But I also have a code that I've signed on to that says I won't use my authority as a therapist mm. to force or um, or cajole somebody into taking on a faith stance. So the way I might do it is if I, if I was counseling with you, I might say, 
Um, you know, some of the stuff we've talked about, I think you might really be interested in hearing this this talk that I heard this guy give. I think he's a great communicator. And then he's somebody that basically just communicates about, about what a relationship with Christ is all about. And I was wondering, would you be willing to listen to that? And then maybe we could, we could next time we meet, we could talk through it. And that way, I'm kind of, I'm outside of that. Now, when Francis Chan speaks and does his thing, he's totally telling them the gospel. Yes. Right? He's totally giving them the gospel, and I have no doubt that if they listen to the whole 20-minute thing, they got the gospel. But what I found interesting in that approach there is is that you asked permission. Absolutely. You didn't just kind of throw it on them. You, you, were, you were more like a guide, a mentor. Like, hey, there's this thing here. May I take you a couple steps this way? Yeah. Yeah. In therapy, we talk a lot about, especially when we're dealing with marriages, we talk a lot about the idea of inviting as opposed to demanding. Mm -hmm. Um, And that if I'm inviting, if I'm really inviting my spouse to do a certain thing, then I may get turned down, but I'm probably not going to get a defensive, angry response, right? (laughs) Right. Um, But if if really what I'm doing is demanding, and I can kind of tell that if I get turned down and then I feel angry... Well, then it probably was a demand. Regardless of what words I use, it mm-hmm. probably was a demand because I just, I just assumed that, well, no, she should do this. And then I respond with, I get defensive and I get angry and so on. But if it's an invitation, it's just like if I invite you over to the house for a party and you decide for whatever reason not to do it, it doesn't really reflect badly on me. Yeah. It just, it's just a matter of, okay, you decided not to do it. I don't even know why. Maybe it's because you guys had other plans. Maybe you're tired of parties, what, whatever. But you, but you turned down the invitation, and it reflects well on me that I made the invitation. What is the difference between um, living missionally and evangelism? You know, it's interesting to me that when... Jesus, the first contact Jesus had with disciples was to make a statement to them, follow me and I will make you somebody who fishes for men. I will make you disciples. That seems like, and then the last thing is even clearer. The last thing after, after three and a half years or so of, of, of time with Jesus, the last thing he said was, okay, so now you go, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit, and you go and you do what? Make disciples. I think the focus, the focus probably needs to be, especially given the last 20 years or so of what's happened in America, I think the, the, the direction of what we're doing needs to be more about disciple-making than evangelism. I'm not even sure I... I I think that the idea is true about, um, as a matter of fact, when I first became saved, one of the things that just amazed me is I, w- I was reading this book and, and the guy made the point that the phrase to accept Christ is not in the Bible. It's not there. I'd use that all the time. I thought that's what we were supposed to do. I thought accepting Christ was the big deal. And yet, it doesn't seem like that's doesn't seem like that was the thing. It seemed like becoming a follower of Jesus was the thing. And so, so what does it really mean? I think that's the question that we have to constantly think about. What does it really mean to become a disciple, somebody who's really following Jesus? And what would that look look like? And of course, it's it's not simple in that Jesus was God. So there's some things that I'm not going to follow him in, right? So that so. So to to take a walk on the sea is probably not going to work for me. 
but but that there are profound ways in which he wants me to follow him. Um, and that's what I try to think about when I think about what the missional lifestyle is all about. So speaking of Jesus, do we see Jesus living missionally? Is he giving us models for making disciples that we can work out in our own lives? Um, yeah, I absolutely think so. Um, as a matter of fact, I thought that, 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 that what you preached last week really, really fit that, that the image of Jesus walking, um, in Samaria and just taking his time and really that, that was the point for him right then, that that was it. That was what he was doing. He wanted that to be a context for what he was saying and he wanted there to be a message that he was able to communicate while he was there. As a matter of fact, one of the guys that I read a lot about trying to build relationships with people, he makes a big deal of saying there are some things that are kind of almost a guaranteed win. Like, ask somebody to come over to your house and help you clean out your garage. Um, and so, it's a task that has to be done. It will, will be important. You're not just making up the task, but at the same time, you're making it clear that, okay, I'm really asking, would you be willing to help me? And most of the time, the request for help is responded to with, yeah, sure, I'd be glad to. And then the natural thing later is that that person would ask you, could you help me with this? Could you take my kid to whatever? Or could you help me clean out my, my garage? And and I think often relationships are built that, that way. Ah, so what are some other practical ways we can start being missional and making those connections with humans. Yeah, I think, I think the, the big idea that maybe can be played out every day and that I don't think I do very, very well is, is that every connection, every, every, um, relationship, even if it's just a very, very short term one is an opportunity to, to serve. And maybe that service will be kind of a foundation on which we can, share Christ. And so, so for example, um, last week I spent one day dealing with the hospital stuff and the chemo stuff and all, all of that. And in the process of that, there's probably, I don't know, six different staff that I have to deal with throughout that whole time. Uh, and of those, there's two or three of them that I actually spent a lot of time with. Um, and, um, and they're just, and they're doing things that they kind of know how to do. They're not, they don't really have to concentrate on them. They know exactly how to do it and, and, and they do their job very well. So there's lots of opportunity for, for, for dialogue. And, um, and I think that, that to look at those as opportunities to, to share Christ, but first just to share humanity. I think it's not about, mm trying to figure out, okay, well, how can I fit in the four laws? I think, I think it's really the first about... The four spiritual laws. Yeah. 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 So I think it's really first about, okay, how can I make a connection with, with, with them? And that's not usually very hard. Human connection. You know, when we come to a Bible passage and we see, oh my goodness, this Bible's talking about fear. I have fears. Uh, this Bible's talking about how to admit you have weaknesses. I have weaknesses I'm afraid to admit to. Like, all of a sudden, I can relate to it more. It's like, yeah, it's 2,000 years old, but it's talking to me now. And I, I get that. And so you're talking about not putting on the four spiritual laws on a person. Like, here, understand this information. Like, but I have no connection to it. But rather making a human connection with that person. I love how you emphasize that. They're a human. Connect with them on that level. And and even in the process of medical stuff, there's it's there's some natural things that when people notice that my level of 
of stress or my the, the anxiety that I have about about certain things like an IV or like mm-hmm. being poked or pain or what whatever that that I mean I don't like that stuff but but my level of anxiety about it isn't really very high um, and mm-hmm. I think part of the reason for that I mean because I know when I deal with clients a big part of our anxiety it's not just anxiety it's it's anxiety or it's fear about the fear. It's not just that that you're afraid of what of whatever you're afraid of. You're afraid of being afraid about that, huh. right? And so, so I realize that some parts of the of the medical process I'm going to go through are going to involve some pain, or might involve some 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 pain. And it's like, okay, I can handle that because I don't have I don't have a sense of building up to it and worrying about it. Um, and I think that's really because of spiritual growth for me. I think that God has really built into me a sense of, of okay, I am not going to direct my attention toward toward whatever whatever problems or stress are going to happen. I'm just going to pre- prepare for them as much much as I can. And if I can't, then I'm just going to realize it's going to happen and it's going to be over. Um, and that. And that when I dialogue with somebody about that, it's easy for that to turn to spiritual things. So if I'm really thinking about about what God's doing in the world, and I'm really thinking about the kingdom of God, then the fact that for about a five-second period of time, I'm going to feel some pain is really not a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, And this ties in so well with how Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Mm -hmm. He entered into the experience so you could talk about that human experience. Yeah. Uh, he definitely made that bridge. He entered in. And so maybe when, when the scripture says that the temptations came to him in all ways, like ours, they came mm-hmm. like he had some, he had those two. He could have simply given himself to the anxiety of fear about this or fear about that. Right. Yeah. That's not just about, Oh, he was tempted with the sin and didn't sin. It's, <laughs> He felt that anxiety, too. Yeah. And yeah, apparently there are times when it's reasonable to give yourself to some anxiety for a period of time. I mean, as he looked at the cross, and it was just those those days before the cross, it was clearly he was willing to experience the anxiety and the pain of that, and that that was okay. Yeah. That that made sense. Okay, but that's a different thing, right? For me to have that kind of anxiety about a five-second poke that's going to cause me some some pain is a different thing than about, like, okay, hours and hours of excruciating pain and then having to somehow welcome this and and not cause it to terminate. I always think that, like, when you think about the passion, that that's one of the biggest issues for, for me. It's like, you know, if I was doing a marathon, the hardest thing for me would be not stopping because I could stop. Yeah, right. right. And you understand it's like, you know, he could have stopped at any point, right? He could have just said, enough, not willing to do this. And and he absolutely had the power to do that. And yet he ran the marathon, but not just a marathon. I mean, this is, this is just, I can't even imagine how tough that would be. I, I can imagine throwing a switch and saying, okay, I'm willing to go through this experience and then I don't have any choice from that point on. But... But getting into the experience and then being able to terminate it at any point, that would be hard.
So let's finish by hearing about a time you've seen missional living work successfully. Well, I guess it gets back to, to um, an example of how when I'm dealing with a client, say I'm dealing with a 16-year-old kid, and, and clear, clearly that kid has not made any sort of commitment to, to Christ. Um, in my work, the, the way, like I was saying before, the typical kind of, of strategy I would, I would employ there would be to, to say, okay, if you're interested, here's a, a DVD of a talk that I think you might really enjoy. I think the guy's a really good communicator. Would you be up for hearing that? And, um, and then to talk with him about it later and then to find out that God actually used that to, to, to really bring him face to face with Christ. And I think that's the missional part, whether or not he decides to, 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 um, commit himself to Christ and be a disciple, I think that's a whole different thing. But I think the missional part is he got the message. He was face-to-face with Christ, and that was the important thing. Um, so, so I think, I mean, I think I've seen that happen many, many times, and I think that that's been, that's been important because I realized that, that I'm playing a fairly insignificant role in that, right? The missional part of what I'm doing is really a pretty small role. Um, I think another thing that um, that I'd like to do better at that I don't think I do very well. I think my wife does really, really well at this. That that um, in dealing with people that are homeless or people that have very serious problems, um, it's being a, a counselor is not hard for me because because I spend an hour with them a week, right? Or maybe two hours with them a week. That's about it. But but being a friend to that person that's way harder. That's way harder, and so and so. I really, really like for God to develop that more in me—the ability to just to strike up a relationship with somebody, and then to just allow it to be a natural thing where where um, I'm willing to get into somebody's life whose life experience is different than mine entirely. Like if you think about the person who's homeless, you think about and you contrast that with my life experience, that's really, really different. And it's really, really hard for me even to kind of get myself in that mindset. And when you think about it, that's truer to the nature of the incarnation of Jesus. Yeah. Becoming something he wasn't (laughs) from God to human. I mean, yeah, it's one thing for us to be missional with people like us. It's another to step into another kind of life. And if God can give us the grace to be more incarnational, yeah, as well yeah. as missional, yeah, what could we see? I'd like, I'd really like to, and, and I can learn some of that from my wife. She's amazing, and she's really able to spend extended periods of time with folks that are struggling with all kinds of things, whether it's being homeless, or whether it's drug addiction, or whether it's um, certain beliefs that they have that are just getting them into trouble over and over again, or. Um, or life-dominating sins of various kinds. She's just willing to walk alongside them and build relationship with them and realize they're not going to grow in all of those areas at the same time. And I do do think that being missional is different for different people who have different gifts. Very important. Yeah, so I think there's that. And I also think there's times when God says, okay, at this moment, I don't care about your gifts. I just want you to go do that. That, ah. And so I think there's a blend, and we talk a lot about how 
how if you're going to be a star, if you're going to be really, really good, you're going, it's probably going to be a good fit for your gifts. And so I totally believe that. But I also believe that there are times that God just says, I want you to be available to me. And if you're not an evangelist, that's okay. I need you to go and share with this person. So know who you are, know your strengths, use them for Christ, but don't forget to live moment to moment under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Because you can't box God. Well, I'm just a specialist in this area. Ah, yeah, but maybe you're the one to reach this one person because you're the only one to notice them today. And it might be out of your realm of comfort. Welcome to the incarnation. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone, Michael Beavers. Thank you. All right. Thanks. After my conversation with Michael, he emailed me some other thoughts that he had. Um, I'm going to read this one I thought was really good. It's from Pastor Timothy Keller. Uh, he's, he's a pastor in New York and also an author. And he, he's added, uh, he's written about this, what makes a group missional? Six characteristics. And I'm sharing them because I think if we as Christians begin to embody these, we will see our engagement with humanity more effective. A missional group is not necessarily one that is doing some kind of specific evangelism program, though that is to be encouraged. Rather, one, if its members love and talk positively about the city or neighborhood. Two, if they speak in language that is not filled with pious, tribal, or technical terms and phrases, nor with disdainful and embattled verbiage. Three, if in their Bible study they apply the gospel to the core concerns and stories of the people of the culture. Four, if they are obviously interested in and engaged with the literature, art, and thought of the surrounding culture and can discuss it both appreciatively and critically. Five, if they exhibit deep concern for the poor, generosity with their money, purity, and respect with regard to the opposite sex, and humility toward people of other races and cultures. And six, if they do not bash other Christians and churches, then seekers and non-believing people will be invited and will come and stay as they explore spiritual issues. So key. To create an environment in which people feel like they belong, even if they're not yet believers. It's one of the things we see in Jesus' healing of the man born blind in John 9, is you see this gradual realization of who Jesus is as he talks. He doesn't believe. Jesus said you belong. And then... He gradually started to believe. What if we considered everybody as belonging and helped them along in their belief rather than said, you belong once you pass the initiation? Believing. I just wonder. Finally, we come to our preview section as we end each episode with a preview of next Sunday's text and how you can read it in anticipation. Some ideas or observations or insights to kind of consider. Try not to give away too much of what's coming in the message, 
Um, although, to be honest, it's like half written, so um, I don't even know fully exactly what's coming. But I do know this. We're going to circle around this idea of peace. This Sunday is Palm Sunday. Well, I'm going to call it Peace Sunday. And the text will be Luke 19, verses 11 to 48. So one of the things that you should look for as you read this is that theme of peace and its opposite, violence. Now, there's a lot of um, cultural background, which I will give to you in the sermon itself, which is very uh, important and insightful and kind of lifts the context of Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, it kind of brings it vividly to life. Um, but for now, you're going to, I want you to observe a couple things. Uh, this, this passage has four scenes. First, a parable about the ten minas or pounds in which Jesus gives this parable. I want you to ask, why is he giving this parable and why right before he enters Jerusalem? The second scene is the triumphal entry itself, starting in verse 28. And this is where Jesus rides on the donkey to the shouts of Hosanna, save us, and the palm branches. And then the third scene is verse 41, where Jesus then enters Jerusalem, and this is unique to Luke, is he weeps over it. He weeps over the city. Now, we all know John 11.35, Jesus wept. Very famous verse, shortest verse in the Bible, but also just, uh, it's, it's always impressionable that Jesus wept. But here's the other Jesus wept passage that you don't hear people talking about. And maybe it's because it's just not an as famous of a passage, or we just don't know what to do with it. I want you to ponder, why is Jesus weeping? What is he weeping over? And then also ask, why, why is the triumphal entry sandwiched between this parable and Jesus' weeping? Like, what is the framework that's going on here? And then the fourth and final scene is Jesus cleansing the temple. This is a very abbreviated form. Matthew's seems to be a bit longer. But why do we have Jesus weeping in between his triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple? Because in Matthew and Mark, Jesus rides on the donkey and cleanses the temple. Luke has him weeping in between that. Why? Some things to look at. Also, try to pick up on the ideas of peace. That word is definitely used. Uh, look up Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. The Jesus riding on a donkey uh, is fulfilling that prophecy. Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. Matthew says that explicitly. Um, it's kind of implied here in Luke. Look also for any indications toward violence. Um, we all want peace in our own lives and in this world. What? does Jesus say about that? What is his heart for that? How shall we live? Just some thoughts. Hope you're looking forward to Sunday. I will see you there. This is Pastor Brandon with Grace and Gratitude.